the only way that I really know how to pastor you is to pastor you through rawness. I, I try to be as polished as I can be, as polished as a boy from Rabbit Town can be, I suppose. But truthfully, I only know how to do what is real. And, you know, I think everybody grieves differently and everybody grieves uniquely. And I think we grieve in the way that the, the Lord built us. And we grieve through the, the things that the Lord put in our lives and equipped us with. And, and, and the, one, the, the thing that the Lord kind of equipped me with was, was preaching. And I think I, I've been reflecting a lot. And, you know, I've thought about uh, a few months ago when we mourned Avery and, and the sermon that day. And then I thought about this morning. And, you know, I think what the Lord is showing me is that there's a sense in which preaching is a mechanism of my grief. That preaching is, 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 is uh, uh, somehow one of the things that the Lord uses to kind of comfort my own soul and to use as maybe to strengthen his church and to bring his church together. And so I just ask that you just, you just bear with me and that you kind of just go through this, this journey uh, with me because well, I just don't know what else to do. I know that every single Sunday it is my responsibility to stand up and to preach the word of God regardless of what is going on in my own life, regardless of what is happening in my own heart. And the only way that I know how to do that and to be able to actually endure this for more than a year or two years is just to, just to not try to have to put a front up and not have to try to kind of put up some kind of airs, but just to be real. And so that's my heart um, this morning. And I want you to understand that I am not uh, deceived about Bobby. I, I realize that, that Bobby was a flawed man. I realize that, that Bobby was an imperfect man. He could tell you his own imperfections quite quickly. And so I, I'm, I'm not here to hold up this man in the church and say, look at this perfect man, look at this man without sin and follow after him and be a member of Iron City the way he was a member. That, that's not what my heart is at all. What my heart is is to hold up this man as the scriptures tell us and to see the faithful testimony of a saint of God to see how an ordinary man can be used for extraordinary work in the kingdom of God just through pure raw faithfulness and so this morning I, I, I invite you to come and to look at the scriptures with me and we'll look at the scriptures on one hand. We'll think about maybe the life of Bobby and the other. And we'll understand that both of them are made full in Christ Jesus, his Lord. Okay? So turn with me this morning to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We'll get off something that will make me anxious and nervous for the next three months. Is we'll get off of the preaching calendar and uh, off of the plan. And, uh, but we'll get back on it at some point. It'll all be good, Aaron. I promise. It's all, it's all going to be, I know you, the staff, see, that's the thing. The, the, the other guys, they don't care about the schedule. That's me. I care about the schedule. So, that, so they're always giving me a hard time about it. So we're going to get off the schedule and go to John chapter 13 today. And uh, Zach will pick up with Matt, Matthew chapter 13 next week. So stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. There was really only one passage that I thought was appropriate for this morning. Um, the only one passage that I, that I felt compelled to preach, and it is this one. We'll begin in verse 31 and just read to verse 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. 
If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. As we've seen, as we've walked through Matthew's gospel for us, but in fact, if we were to read all of the gospel accounts, all four gospels, what we would find and what we have found is that Jesus is always talking about the fruit of his disciples. That the fruit of the disciples was important to Jesus, and it was the important marker for Jesus of a true disciple of Christ. A true a person who has truly surrendered their lives and come under the lordship of Christ and repented of their sins. And so over and over and over, Jesus is calling us to look at our lives and to see if we find there the fruit of a true disciple. The fruit of true discipleship. That we, are, we were a bad tree that in Christ Jesus have been transformed into a new tree, transformed into a good tree. And being transformed from a bad tree who produced bad fruit, we have now been transformed into a good tree that is to produce good fruit. And so there is a, a real sense in which we are to demonstrate the vitality and the rareness and the uniqueness of like a, a loaded down apple tree in the middle of a desert surrounded by cactuses, right? That we are living in this barren land, we are living in this land of desert, and yet because of the fountain of life that is in us, because of Christ Jesus that has made us well, we are able to demonstrate a fruitfulness and demonstrate a vitality that no other person on earth outside of Christ Jesus is able to demonstrate. I think this is very much what the psalmist is meaning in Psalm 1 when he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water and yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. That Christ Jesus is saying that for all of us now in Christ, all of us that have been brought in in the gospel, we now living in the desert that is this fallen, broken world are like a tree planted by a stream of water that is able to find vitality and fruitfulness when none other can. And so this is why for the vision here at Iron City is to make disciples that are maturing and multiplying to the ends of the earth. It's because a disciple ought to bear the fruits of godliness. It's because a disciple ought to bear the fruit of the Spirit. It's because a disciple ought to be maturing in the Word. A disciple ought to be maturing in patience, ought to be maturing in kindness, ought to be uh, maturing in gentleness. A disciple ought to be maturing in worship and maturing in their thoughtfulness and maturing in their worldview and maturing in their belief about God. 
And maturing a disciple ought to be, as, the, as Jesus said in the parable of the soils, they ought to multiply themselves, maybe 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold. That they ought to be the types of people that, being matured in the faith, now invite others to come to faith. That they live a life that is so countercultural and so compelling that other people are drawn in by the aroma of their living sacrifice. That other people are being drawn into Christ because of the fruitfulness of their own lives. And so they are able to go out and they are able to multiply themselves from here to the end of the earth through the power of Christ and to the glory of Christ. And we get this definition because we believe this is what the gospel teaches. That Jesus says it should be the culmination of discipleship. That there should be fruit. You know, I think about a story that I heard a lady tell at Bobby's funeral. A few, about three years ago, we were starting a mentoring program at White Plains Middle School. And we were, basically the school would have some, some children that maybe they were having some struggles in school or maybe some struggles at home or whatever. And so some of us from Iron City were, were going to kind of take them under our wing, just be a friend to them and just care for them. And the mom of the little boy for which Bobby cared for three years ago, came and talked to me at the funeral. And she said, Cody, I just thought somebody should know this. You know, we don't have a good family. And my son doesn't have any grandparents. And so when it came to be grandparents day, Bobby went. And every single year for three years, even as my son has grown up, Bobby has came and sat with him. On Grandparents Day. And that my 12-year-old son said this morning, I don't want anybody else to come. Bobby was my granddad. And I think we hear stories like that. And we think, Bobby was a super Christian. That Bobby had something in him, something about him that was just made him some super Christian. And, and so he was having an impact and he was doing things that I am completely incapable of. But brothers and sisters, what I want us to understand this morning is that the fruit of the gospel does not make you a super Christian, but a faithful one. That what Bobby did in his life and how Bobby accomplished things for the glory of Christ in his life is available to every single Christian in Christ Jesus. If we will just offer our lives to the Lord day by day, moment by moment. That maturing and multiplying to the glory of Christ is not for some special echelon of Christian, but instead it is for every single brother or sister in the church. And so Jesus is telling his disciples here in John 13 that there's a specific fruit that should be present in their life. There's a, there's a specific quality that should be especially true of them. There's a specific fruit that should be particularly true. That if, if we were going to find one fruit above all fruit that demonstrates whether or not one is truly in Christ Jesus, whether or not one is truly a disciple of Jesus, then we might go to this fruit. And he says it is that you would love one another. Love one another. This is, listen to what he says in verse 35 again. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
In other words, all people will see this fruit in your life. Unbeliever, believer alike, family, friend, stranger, they will see this in your life and seeing this fruit in your life, they will know that you are a disciple of Jesus. They will know that you are a follower of Jesus. So by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if, if you have love for one another. Now, I've heard this translated, I believe incorrectly, a lot. That a lot of people, when they come to one another, they believe that Jesus, by saying one another, is talking about kind of this global neighborhood that we live in. And so he's kind of talking about love your neighbor. That this is kind of a reiteration of, of, of love your neighbor. I think we might see it as an extension of, but certainly not a reiteration. That Jesus here is talking much more specifically, much more focused than simply love all of mankind or love all of the people that you meet or love all of the world. He's talking much more specifically about that. And I believe it's the context in which Jesus is speaking that makes this abundantly clear. See, Jesus here is in the midst of the upper room discourse, right? He, 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 is, he is beginning this, this final time, these final moments with his disciples. He is in the shadows of the cross. Jesus has just tied a towel around his waist and wiped the, the mud and the manure from the feet of his disciples. Jesus' betrayer has now left. And he is left with the eleven faithful. He's left with the eleven that would weep with him until the end. He is left with the 11 that have witnessed his miracles, heard his teachings, and have become convinced that he is worth bargaining their lives. And ultimately, all of them, Jesus knows, will die a martyr's death. So Jesus looks, and you can imagine, there's not a dry eye in the house, that all of them are weeping as Jesus is letting them know what is unfolding. Jesus looks at them knowing the hard days that are ahead, knowing that they're going to doubt, knowing that they're going to recant, knowing that then they're going to come back and begin the church and face prison and persecution and endangerment. And Jesus brings them all up and he says, men, little children, he calls them, my beloved, love one another. Love one another. As days get hard, love one another. As days get dark, love one another. As money goes away, love one another. As prison comes, love one another. As uncertainty abounds, love one another. As the government comes against you, love one another. As you're lit as candles in Nero's garden, love one another. As women, wives become widows because men are dying for the faith, love one another. Jesus is not talking about this broad love on all of mankind, which certainly we know is the responsibility of the church. No, Jesus is saying that his church, that his disciples, that the brothers and sisters in the family of God should have a particular and unique and extraordinary love for each other. A love that is even grander and even bigger than the love that they have for this global world. And I'm not saying that to lessen our love for the world, but instead to show us how extraordinary and enormous our love for one another is to be. That there is to be a love among us that is so compelling that the rest of the world sees that and says, those people must know Jesus. Those people follow after Jesus. We came to see this in 
the disciples' lives played out in the church. That as we read through the book of Acts, you really begin to be uh, envious of them almost because you, you see them in this church as this fledgling organism, this brand new thing. And they're just kind of figuring all this out. And the only thing genuinely that they know is that they love Jesus. And that they're going to follow after Jesus. And so they, they come together. And it says, you know what they did? They began to sell things. Some of them would sell property that had no doubt been in their family for generations. Family heirlooms. They would sell them. And they would take the money and they would, they would find the needs in the church, the needs among the brothers and sisters, and they would meet those needs. They would care for their widows. They would care for their orphans. They would care for the brother that lost his job as a result of the faith. They would care for the family that lost their dad, lost their husband because of the faith. They would care for the ones that fell on hard times so much so that in Acts chapter 2, after the Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit has descended and the power of God has been manifested in the church, it says that they had everything in common. Everything in common. Everything in mind, spirit, and soul. They had it in common because though they came from different ethnicities and though they came from different socioeconomic levels and though they came from all different kinds of walks of life and all different kinds of backgrounds ranging from crooked tax collector to self-righteous Jew, they all came together and in Christ Jesus were made the same. This is what the church should look like. This is why we talk about being a church family. Because it is in the church family that we are to demonstrate this extraordinary and unique love for one another. That it's in the church family that we are to, to extend to one another gratitude and extend to one another generosity and extend to one another time and extend to one another self-sacrificing service, building up one another, taking care of one another, being in one another's lives. You cannot live a faithful Christian life outside of the direct connection to the local church because it is in the local church that you are to live out this new commandment to love one another. And so to believe that you can walk rightly with Jesus outside of the church is to believe that you can have total disregard for the new commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples in his darkest hour. It is a fantasy created by modern arrogance. That we can live outside of the church a faithful life, a faithful Christian life. And frankly, I know the church has her flaws and the church is messed up, but I don't even know why you'd want to. I don't even know why you'd want to. Brothers and sisters, I am not interested in being a part of a church that has exciting music and thought-provoking preaching and big programs that is not willing to die for one another, let alone live for one another. A church is not a, a show on a stage. A church is not an event to attend a couple of times a month. A church is a family that you commit to, a family that you sacrifice for, a 
family that you oblige yourself to. A family in which you are resolved to make sure that you seek out their greatest good. But today, too often, many Christians make the church the last thing to be squeezed into their schedule and the first thing to be squeezed out of their budget. Believe, brothers and sisters, that our view of the church has been tainted and deceived. That Christ is saying, this is the fruit of a believer. This is the fruit of a disciple. That you love one another. That you're in it with one another. That you're going to go down with one another if you're going to go down. That, that you need something taken care of. Like, you're, you're falling on hard times. You don't have a job. I've got your back. You you don't have a place to live? Come live with me. You're in a place of emotional unhealth and can't even cook for yourself? I'll cook for you. I'll cut your grass. That kind of depth can't come in an hour a week. And it certainly can't come in about two hours a month. You know, recently, Aaron pulled some statistics just kind of from attendance in Sunday school and things like that and just kind of seeing what it looks like. And I was shocked to see that people that in my mind are the most faithful, and I'm not, I'm not telling you this to bring on guilt, just being honest with you and transparent, came about 60% of the time. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to go deep with each other, if we're going to change one another's lives, if we're going to have impact for the kingdom, We've got to be committed to each other. We've got to prioritize one another. No marriage could make it on 60% of effort, 60% attendance, 60% commitment. No marriage can survive it. And brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me say no church can survive it either. We are a family. With one another, in all of our blemishes, in all of our mistakes, in all of our ugliness, in all of our beauty. We are in this together. We are a family together. I am a walking, talking legacy of a man who just showed up week after week after week over a period of years in the same church and taught me the gospel and taught me the Bible and invited me to be a part of his life, I am standing here in front of you only because there was a man who was just faithful, just committed, just showed up, just let me go with him places. He just lived his life and then invited me to be a part of it. He lived his life, did what he was going to do, and said, hey, you want to come with me? He probably got more than he bargained for. I came a lot. You have no idea what kind of impact pure faithfulness and commitment may have on who knows how many. You have no idea. But most Christians have never experienced the impact that God has designed and intended for them to experience because they have never obliged and committed themselves to the service in the church. Most Christians never will know what it is like to experience this kind of radical love towards someone and from someone because they aren't together enough to know it. 
Brothers and sisters, let it not be said of us. Let it not be said of us. I believe what we have here, though, is Jesus has in his mind the two great commandments that he has already given. So when he says a new commandment, I think that's what he's saying is it's new to. It's new to the other two. And those first two commandments are really outrageous. They're outrageous. And I believe this third one is equally as outrageous. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of your soul. Depend on, depending on the gospel account, you either get three alls or you get four alls. And so what Jesus is telling us, the greatest commandment is, is that we would love God with the allness of our lives. That in every area of our life, in every arena of who we are as a man or as a woman, that that would be set aside and devoted to the Lord with a single-minded devotedness. Now it's outrageous, isn't it? It's outrageous because all of us understand that never in our lives have we ever loved God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength and all of our soul. Never in in our entire lives have we truly known what it is to be that kind of united, one with Christ like that. And yet Jesus does not lower the standard for us. Jesus instead calls and says, no, keep striving my brothers. Keep striving, my little children. Keep pursuing, and I will give you the grace. I will give you the mercy. I will give you the strength to keep taking the steps. The second commandment is also outrageous. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. That is, you are to pursue the well-being of your neighbor as much as, and with the same passion as, and with the same earnest as, you pursue your own well-being. That you are to pursue the good for them the same way that you pursue good for you. You're to pursue happiness for them the same way that you pursue happiness for yourself. You're to pursue health for them the same way you pursue health for yourself. That you are to have their interests on equal ground with your own interests. Outrageous. And then we come to this new commandment. And what does Jesus say? Just as I have loved you, love one another. The commandment to love one another is not new. The people of God were always to have love for one another. And that is certainly within the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. To to be among the community of faith, the, the people of God. But Jesus comes and he doesn't just leave it there. He raises the standard, see. It's the, it's the new standard that is new. And so Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you go and love one another. That our responsibility in the church, our love for our fellow brothers and sisters in the church is the Lord Jesus. The love that I'm supposed to have for the senior adults in my church, down to the infants in my church, is to love them as Jesus loved me. It's outrageous. It's seemingly impossible. And there, there are two ways that I kind of want us to think through, two ways that I kind of want us to, to process as we, we think about the, the way that Jesus loved us, that we might emulate his kind of out, outrageous love, that we might emulate Jesus' outrageous love and so try to fulfill to the best of our ability this outrageous commandment given to us by the Lord Jesus. The first way that I kind of want us to think about it is in terms of self-denying service. Self-denying service. I think immediately in Jesus' mind when he says this is what has just happened in verses 
uh, in verses 14 and 15. He's just washed the disciples' feet. Now read verses 14 and 15 with me. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So Jesus is saying, your responsibility is to love one another the same way that I have loved you. And how have I loved you? I've loved you by getting on my knees and doing what the Son of God should never do. Getting on my knees, taking a towel around my waist, and getting the manure from between your toes. Washing the dirt off the top of your feet. And he says, I have set for you the example. I have made clear for you the picture that your responsibility to one another is to have a self-sacrificing, even self-deprecating level of love in which you are serving one another, doing what is no fun to do because you care so deeply for each other. You know, love will make you do things you wouldn't do for any other reason, won't it? I, I change a diaper sometimes, and it looks like a nuclear explosion. And I think, only because of love, baby. Only because of love. It's only because of love you get on your hands and knees and scrub vomit out of the carpet, right? It's only because of love you do things like that. And this is what Jesus is calling us to in the church. This is the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to in the church. That we see the needs that are there. We see the needs that are present among one another. And to the best of our ability, and by the grace and strength of, of God himself, we resolve to our own sacrifice, to our own difficulty, to our own inconvenience, to do whatever we can do to take care of that need. Maybe it's discipling children. Maybe it's, it's feeding and caring for widows. Maybe it's, it's stepping into a family in their moment of grief and taking from them all the responsibilities of the world so they can be together and grieve together. But whatever it is, it's, it's seeing the need and realizing though it's inconvenient, though it's uncomfortable, though it's not even fun, because I, am love, because I, am in lo because I love that person, I am willing to go and to do it. Is this not what Christ Jesus did? Is this not what Christ Jesus did? As he sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking the Father that there might be another way. That the cup might pass from him. He wanted there to be another way. He wanted there to be any other way, but there was no other way. And so, compelled and obliged by love, the Lord Jesus stepped up and took our place on the cross, enduring the wrath of God as he hanged there. You know, as we've talked about Bobby's service in the church, it's been humbling. It's been humbling to realize that he literally served every single ministry. He served our youngest ones all the way up to our senior saints. He served them all. He cared for them all. There was, there was something in him that drove him and filled him with this kind of compelling love. And it, it brought out of him the best. It brought out of him a commitment. It brought out of him a resolve. And you know, but you know what? I don't think Bobby went. To hang out with kids because that was going to be more fun than going fishing. I, I, Bobby loved to go fishing. And I, I'm pretty sure that if, it was, if, it, if, there, if there was nothing else to do, if he could, go, if he could say, all right, honestly, honestly, do I want to go get covered in shaving cream and slide down a water slide? Or do I want to go get on a bass boat and go catch fish? I, I, come on, y'all. Like, we can all be holy 
And we can walk with Jesus, but we know what the, the answer is there, right? But what was Bobby willing to do? Bobby was willing to obligate him to service, to his own discomfort, to his own inconvenience, to his own uh, to to take away from his own hobby, to take away from his own interests, so that the children might hear the gospel, so that the children might know in a world of fatherless families that there is one man that loves them, the one man that cares about them. So Bobby had his interests, but he saw the greater work being the children, and seeing the greater work being the children willingly sacrifice what he would rather do to do what had to be done and what should be done and what was most important to be done. Brothers and sisters, if you're waiting for a convenient time to serve in the church, it's not going to come. If you're waiting for butterflies and rainbows to go and work with the children, those aren't going to come. If you're waiting to be excited about having to spend Friday night and Saturday night preparing a Sunday school lesson, That's always going to sound overwhelming. That's always going to sound like it's going to have something hanging over your head. It's going to be obligatory and it's going to be difficult. But brothers and sisters, love compels us to oblige ourselves to one another. If you're going to teach, it's going to require you to perhaps travel less than you wish you could. If you're going to invest in children, it's going to have to require you to be more self-deprecating than perhaps is comfortable. If you're going to help out on Wednesday nights, that means there's going to be a lot of Wednesdays in which you're just spent from work. And yet you're going to come and you're going to do it anyway because you're obliged in love. You care for one another. You care about what happens to our preteens. You care about what happens to the, to, the, to the preschoolers in your church. You care about what's going on in one another's lives. It's self-sacrificing, self-denying service. This is the picture of the gospel. This is the picture of the gospel. That we are following in the footsteps of Christ Jesus himself. That we are following in the footsteps of Christ as he goes to the cross and lays himself there to die on our behalf. Obliging himself to something that was totally not his responsibility but ours. Brothers and sisters, men of God, will you stand in the gap with us? Will you stand in the gap with us? Will you rise up? Will you do what is hard? Will you do what is difficult? Will you do what is less fun than what you could be doing so that the greater good and the greater purpose and the greater love of Christ might be shown to this generation and the generations that follow? Not only do do we see, though, I think Christ's self-denying service, but we also see Christ's peacemaking forgiveness. I use that word very specifically. Peacemaking forgiveness. He calls us, uh, he calls his disciples here in this passage, in verse 33, little children. And we understand that there is no reason that a sinner should ever be able to be called a little child of God, a child of God, a a son of God, a, a daughter of God. 
That there was, there was enmity between us and God. There was separation between us and God. That we had brought infinite offense against an infinite God with no hope of, resol- of resolution on our own. But he says the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And what he means is, is that the Son of Man is going to be glorified through being crucified. That Jesus came not as a peacekeeper, but as a peacemaker. That Jesus stepped into these, this darkened world, this fallen world, where we were uh, at enmity with God. Where there, was, where there was distance between us and the Lord, between us and God with no hope of a bridge. And he stepped in and bridged the gap. And he brought peace where peace could come no other way. Through the cross, through the resurrection, Jesus made peace and reconciliation where peace was not even a possibility. You see, wherever gospel peace is... Two things must be present. There must be repentance and there must be forgiveness. In our relationship with Christ Jesus, the repentance is always coming from us and the forgiveness is always coming from him. Over and over and over as we live this life, we repent and we repent and we repent. And over and over and over by his glorious grace, he forgives and he forgives and he forgives. But it's true of our relationships with one another too. No marriage is ever going to make it without an ongoing ebb and flow of repentance and forgiveness. It's going to be back and forth. He forgives and she repents. She forgives and he repents. It's this ongoing ebb and flow between two sinners under a a roof of grace that are going back and forth. And through this ongoing repentance and, and, uh, and forgiveness, peace is able to be there. Peace is being made. It's being made when the person goes and repents and seeks forgiveness. And it's being made when the person offers the forgiveness to the person. No church is going to survive. I think that's even more in view here. No church is going to survive without a constant ebb and flow of of repentance and forgiveness. That we're going to bring offense to one another. We're going to bring hurt to one another. We're going to be hypocritical sometimes. We're going to drop the ball sometimes. But what we're, we're going to resolve is that we're in this together. And over and over and over, as I realize my offense, I will repent. And as often as my brother repents, I will forgive. That over and over and over, we're going to go back and forth in repentance and forgiveness. You know, I think this is what we will miss most from Bobby. I've thought a lot about this. And yes, he served in a lot of places. And yes, he did a lot of hard work, but I think what we're going to miss most about him is that Bobby was a peacemaker, and that he would carry a burden when there were two brothers that were at odds with one another. He would carry that burden as though it was him that was at odds with somebody, and he would go to both parties over and over and over and over, seeking reconciliation, pursuing reconciliation. If somebody was was hurt or offended by something in the church, Bobby was the type that he would go, even if he didn't have a dog in the fight, he would go to that brother or he would go to that sister and he would seek to bring them back into the flock. He would would seek to bring them back into relationship. He would seek, in other words, to make peace where there was no peace. If I'm honest with you, brothers and sisters, I think there's a lack of forgiveness here that is keeping us from some great works. Let me talk to those of you that have been here a while. Let me, let me, let me speak specifically to you. You know I'm here with you. You know I love you. 
many of you have poured into my life. And I know you've been hurt. I know that through the previous pastor and things that I'm very disheartened by have hurt you and have wounded you and have maybe brought up in your heart a root of bitterness, a root of resentment. And man, some of you haven't been to Sunday school in five years because of that. And some of you haven't served in five years because of that. And if you have served, you've, you've served with this like umbrella, this, this cloud that's, that's hanging over your head. Look, I'm just being real with you. And I know that some of you actually became to be, be at odds with one another. And right now you're not fighting, you're n- nothing like that, but, there, but there, there's distance there. Brothers and sisters, five years is long enough. It's time to forgive. It's time to forgive him. It's time to forgive one another. And it's time to make peace. It's time to come back together in unity and solidarity with gospel resolve and gospel commitment for the good of one another and for the glory of God in our community. Brothers and sisters, it has been long enough. Would this morning you offer forgiveness to whomever has brought offense? Would you offer forgiveness to whatever has damaged your faith? Would you offer forgiveness and be made well today? Would you go to one another if there has been distance there? And would you seek and repent and receive forgiveness? Would you go to one another and let not the sun set on your anger or bitterness or hurt, would you go to one another and be reconciled to one another and so demonstrate the gospel? Brothers and sisters, I believe and I am convinced that there is a great work for us to do. And I believe that by God's grace and by God's power, we will do it. But we must do it together. May the words of Bobby Wilkins be prophetic that this is the day and this is the time that the church comes together. This is the time that the church rises up. That this is the time that the church finds revival. Brothers and sisters, this morning, before God, I am calling on you to be a humbled peacemaker. Let us pray together.